John chapter 13. I have really been looking forward to this section in the Gospel of John. We've spent the last 11 months, yeah, it'll be 11 months since we started this Gospel, uh, looking at 12 chapters. And now, it's as though time slows down in the Gospel of John because we've looked at that 12 chapters that spans three and a half years. And the next five chapters spans five hours. And so, as we look at this, it is, there's a, a definite shift in the ministry that the Lord Jesus had here on this earth uh, as he walked this earth. And for the last three and a half years, it has been to the people. He's been healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, uh, doing these miracles, feeding 5,000, walking on water uh, in his public ministry, doing attesting miracles. We're told in the book of Acts that these miracles were not an end unto themselves, but they were attesting miracles. They were to attest to the fact that he was indeed the Son of God, Son of Man, fully God, fully man. And that he came not to save Israel from the Romans, but to save each person, to save humanity, essentially from themselves. Big difference. We've seen over and over again that the people had a low view. They had come to an uninformed or a, a, a sort of a shortened faith, a form of faith, but it wasn't a fully developed faith, and it still isn't. And it won't be until the other side of the cross. And yet, Jesus now, having wrapped up his public ministry at the end of chapter 12, remember last week we looked at, there's a summary that John writes, and then there's a summary of Jesus' own words of, of what this has been that have brought him to this moment. And now the scene shifts. He's no longer at the temple where he had been and uh, been teaching all week. And, and the other gospels cover in a lot more detail the week between when Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem, the triumphal or the not-so-triumphal entry as we talked about, uh, the other Gospels cover a great deal of the information that went on there. There's the Olivet Discourse, the, discord, the, the teaching that Jesus did on the Mount of Olives. There's the teaching that he did daily in the temple as he was revealing the kingdom of God and, and squaring off with the religious leaders, poking them in the chest. You look in the book of Matthew where he pronounces seven woes upon these guys. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You go about on land and sea for one proselyte. When you have him, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you. You, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier provisions of the law, such as, such as mercy and compassion and justice. And, and they were hot. As we mentioned, they went from being sort of passively angry about him, thinking, yeah, well, we, we need to get rid of this guy, to now they have actively been out to get him, literally. And they will. And he knows it. This night will not be over. Beginning in John chapter 13, it will not be over before he's arrested in the garden. And he demonstrates, we'll see it when we look at that, that they're not taking him by force. Because they come in and, and Jesus or Judas betrays him with a kiss. And, and Jesus says to the Roman cohort that's there with him, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said, I am. It says in the text, I am he. But he is in italics. Remember, we've talked about that. When it's in italics, it's added. For clarification, that wasn't so. That actually kind of messes it up. When he says, I am, he's using the covenant name of God from Exodus chapter 3. I am that I am, Moses. You go tell Pharaoh, that's who sent you. And when Jesus does that in the garden, every person there is knocked backwards. Why? Because he was essentially holding out his hands and saying, go ahead and cuff me. You're not taking me by force. I am doing this voluntarily because he knew that his hour had come and it was time for him to take the cup. What is the cup? There's a lot of debate about that, but essentially it's the cup of suffering that he would take by taking on the sin of humanity upon himself at the cross, that he could offer salvation to anyone who would come. And so as we look at this last section, or next to the last section, there's actually kind of a benediction at the end of the book where Peter or Jesus restores Peter in chapter 21, but but. Uh, Chapter, or verses, chapters 13 through 17 are broken down that chapters 13 and 14 are in the upper room. We, I'm calling all of this the upper room discourse, just kind of for simplicity, the five chapters there. We know that 13 and 14 are actually inside of the upper room, but at the last verse in chapter 14, Jesus says, come, let us go from here. 
Now, most will put forth that as he traveled and walked through the city, because we'll see in a minute that Jesus is on Mount Zion. That's where the upper room was and still is. Uh, and, and at the highest part of the city, and he would have to go down around the temple complex across the Kidron Ravine to the, the Garden of Gethsemane uh, in order to get into position where the guys would come to arrest him. That was where he met with his men often. And yet, when we're here, these last two chapters, these first two chapters, 13 and 14, when he says, let us go from here, I absolutely believe, having been there a couple of times in the upper room, that Jesus didn't leave the building. I believe he went up on the roof. Because chapter 15 starts with, I am the vine, and you're the branches, and my father is the vine dresser. And, and if, if you understand what was going on in that day and how their architecture was in the first century, they used the roof as a place to cool off. Uh, Israel is a very warm climate. It's very much like Southern California. And they grew grapes on arbors to cover the roofs so that the evening breeze would come through. It wouldn't block the breeze, but it would block the sun through the day. And this would have been Passover, as we, we see in verse 1. It's Passover time. That means it's springtime. And there would have been new growth pushing forth on these vines. And if you've ever been around grapevines, those babies grow fast. And so they would have had clippings. Uh, yeah, Chuck's nodding, yes, because he has vineyard at his house. So they had, there would have been clippings all over the roof when Jesus got up on top of the roof and he pointed, and, and I'm convinced, it doesn't say this, but this is, it truly, it fits the text better than any other explanation I've seen that he would point and say, you know, you see these clippings here? You're the branches. I'm the vine. My father is the one who does the pruning and he goes in. There's a great teaching. Can't wait till we get to that. And, and it would have been also as... Passover time now, it would have been a full moon because Passover was held at the first full moon after the spring equinox, okay? And so it would have been Passover, so it would have been brightly lit. They would have been able to see perfectly. And as you'll see, I've got some slides that we're going to look at in a few minutes. As you'll see, Mount Zion's position was such that Mount Moriah is down here. Mount of, the Mount of Olives is over here. Mount Moriah is here, and Mount Zion is here. And it, actually, the way God designed it, I've mentioned before, I think it's kind of silly when I, I watch movies and they show the temple, they show it up on a big mountain. No, it was the lowest mountain. God wanted, by design, for people to be able to look out their window and look down and see that temple, to have a constant reminder of his presence. So uh, we'll see that here they are on Mount Zion and, and, and that you could look out. If you went out up on the roof, you could look out and the city would have been lit in the moonlight. You could have looked right down on the temple and perhaps seen the, the lingering smoke from the sacrifices of that day. Uh, would have been a powerful scene. So we'll look at that. And then in, in verse, or chapters 15 and 16, we don't know the exact location. Very easily could have still been on the roof. Could have been on the roof for chapter 17. Um, well, no, I think in chapter 17 it says that he went across the, the Kidron. Um, yeah, I'll get clear on that. At any rate, but where he goes in and he gives this, these wonderful teachings. I mean, this five hours, gang, is packed with teaching. It's packed with Jesus' revelation of what his guys needed to have in mind, what they needed to do as he was getting ready to leave. But he's promising them all along, these talks that he would have in these next few chapters would have one goal in mind, and that would be to prepare his men for the ministry that they would take up after he went to the cross, rose from the dead, and then ascended to the Father. And there's a great emphasis in here and great teaching, and we'll spend a lot of time on it, on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is saying here, he's saying, you know, unless I go, the helper can't come. And it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I go, I'll send you the paraclete, the one to come alongside of, the one who will come and actually take up residence inside of you, and so now, rather than Jesus being limited to one physical location and being able to minister to a very small group of people, that he, by his Holy Spirit, the presence of God on this earth is you and I, if you are a believer, if you belong to Christ and he is in you, that now becomes the dwelling place, the temple of God would no longer be on Mount Moriah. It would be in the hearts and minds of his people. It still is. 
So a fabulous few chapters as we look at this uh, upper room discourse. Uh, the, the first 12 chapters, is, many call it the book of signs because we've seen the signs and the wonders. We've seen the stuff that Jesus did and, and, and his hope would be that they would say, hey, he healed the blind man. He's got the power to forgive my sins. But remember when he fed the 5,000 men, probably 15,000 people that day, uh, and, and they said, oh, he fed us. And so they chased him around the lake and said, feed us some more, uh, which was a, a very short view of what that was about. So he's going to develop this, and, and I'm excited that we're going to be able to go through this together. Uh, chapter 17 is the real Lord's Prayer. Uh, yeah, the, the one in Matthew, is we call it the Lord's Prayer, but that's the disciples' prayer. The disciples came to him and they said, tell us, teacher, how to pray. Teach us how to pray. And he said, well, pray like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name, and so on. That's the disciples' prayer. It's a model for us to pray by. Now, we don't pray that by rote necessarily, and it's a beautiful prayer to just simply read or to, to say out loud. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' prayer in chapter 17, is the most powerful prayer in all of the Bible. And in it, he actually prays for you and I. What do you mean? You and I. And he says, for those that you will give me. I pray for them, looking down through the ages and seeing you, seeing me. Powerful, powerful stuff. A wonderful chapter. Again, we'll spend a lot of time there, and we'll be looking at prayer. We'll also be looking at what the Lord's will is in that, in this mysterious relationship. He's saying, Father, I'm in you. You're in me. And now, these men that you've given me, I haven't lost any of them except for the son of perdition that the scripture would be fulfilled. And we'll see that in chapter 13 here. He says, now, I'm in them and they're in me. And, and as I'm in you and you're in me, I'm in them. And, and so I'm giving them the things you've given to me. And there's this whole succession that you see from heaven through Jesus to the men. And that would be replaced again by the ministry of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit now, he gets gives us the information from that realm, and, and it's the same kind of a deal. We'll see that, and we'll look at that, and we'll see what true discipleship is, because it's really not me walking out my own ideas about God. It's me simply being obedient, listening, and then being uh, open and receptive to the moving of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's the key. And so we'll look at that. Um, this is a farewell discourse, and, and by discourse, it means series of teachings, okay? If you're, you guys, college students, you go to a lecture and you get a discourse on whatever it is, whatever the subject matter is, and it's a series of teachings, and it's a, it's a body of information that is there to benefit you. And so this discourse, these chapters are there to benefit us. They're not just for us to read these things. My heart, my desire is that we, individually and as a church, would not just look down on these passages. That's not God's design, and it's not my desire. But it's that we would enter into them, and that we would actually come into and live this thing out, that we would walk it out, and that we would be saying, Holy Spirit, come, inform my thinking, transform my mind, renew me, conform me to the image of your Son. That's his goal. That's always his goal. And yet, in these chapters, these are so packed, you guys. They're so full of not just information, but practical stuff uh, that I just, I, I, again, my burden is that, that this church, young or old, that we would simply come together and that we would say, bread of heaven, feed my soul. This is a time of intensive fellowship and teaching between Jesus and his men. Uh, some have called it five wonderful hours with the master. We're going to look at some slides here for a few minutes. Uh, I've developed, these are, I think there's nine of them. Uh, those of you that don't know me, part of how I like to teach people are visual learners and auditory learners. And, and so try to use a blend of both. It's also important that when we're looking at events of the Bible that we connect them to an actual literal location. Uh, the place, the location of the upper room is known. It's assumed to be, has been since very early on, uh, to be on Mount Zion. 
And so as we look at these slides, I want you to take a look at this. And you'll see the large red rectangle in the center, just up from center, is the Temple Mount. Now, from the Temple Mount, going to the right, there is a big ravine. That's the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Ravine. And it's mentioned over and over again in the scripture. Just up from the other side, on the eastern side of the Kidron, is the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where Jesus would be arrested. That's where he always met with his men. That was their central meeting place. And so uh, from there, you see there in blue on the top and on the bottom of the Temple Mount, there's the Pool of Bethesda, the pools at Bethesda, where Jesus took the, the guy and told him to take up his pallet and walk. He healed him on the Sabbath, and the, the religious leaders got all ticked off about it and all that. And then down at the bottom, you see the Pool of Siloam. We looked at that not too long ago when he healed the man who had been born blind. Now, just to the left, where the, you see the Pool of Siloam, you see the upper room. Now, if you could see the geography here, uh, just to the right of the Temple Mount would be a valley. To the, to the, further to the right would be the Mount of Olives that rises up, and that's in green on the map. Now, on the other side is Mount Zion, and that's in green also. And from the Kidron Valley, it's a steep hill that goes all the way up. And you'll see some slides in a minute that will help us to locate the upper room. Uh, again, it's a known place, I've been there, actually to the reconstructed version of it because it's been <laughs> knocked down and destroyed and brought back up over the ages. Uh, gone through all kinds of crazy changes. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but the upper room is, it's important. It's very central to us understanding what went on in these final hours of the Lord's life. Uh, we don't have to know the location. You don't have to travel to Israel, but I think it's important for us to kind of lock in where these things took place. So we'll go to the next slide here. Now, this is called the Abbey of the Dormition. Um, the Dormition is essentially, it, it's where the Catholic Church claims that Mar Mary died, uh, essentially. So uh, they call it the Assumption, and there's a whole doctrinal thing they have about that. I'm not going to go into it, um, largely because it's, very extra biblical information. Yeah, I'm being nice. I'm being nice. <laughs> but it was a monastery. It was built as a church. The early church built a church there near the site of the upper room. And then it was knocked down and then rebuilt by the Byzantine, uh, the Byz in the Byzantine Empire. What happened? Now, give you a little brief history of world empires. Rome, who was the ruling empire of the day in the first century, fell apart, okay? It fragmented. And one of the fragments of the Roman Empire was called the Eastern Roman Empire, and it, was, it, it became the Byzantine Empire. And this is by about the 4th century, the 300s. 4th century would be the 300s. Uh, and, and out of that, there was a, an emperor named Constantine. He was part of the Roman Empire, and he ended up migrating to the east. Uh, and he relocated the capital to what is called what was called Constantinople, that is modern-day Istanbul, Turkey, all right? So that was the capital, and the world empire was the Byzantine Empire. Now, Constantine, he, he had a cool mom. How's that? Constantine's mother was Helen, or Helena, and he had her, he commissioned her to go throughout the ancient world, to go out throughout the ancient, the Holy Land, and to mark out uh, and to preserve antiquities. The reason why so many of the antiquities in Israel have been preserved for us to be able to actually go and, and walk in these places, lay hands on these things, it was because of Helen. And, and, and yeah, I may not agree with Catholic theology and all of that stuff, but I'm very grateful that God in his foreknowledge saw to it that these things would be preserved because Constantine was the first emperor in Rome. He kind of mixed church and state in that sense. All right, he's the one that legalized Christianity and he sort of, nationalized it. Uh, that's where we ended up with all the holidays being, he was mixing pagan religion with, uh, with Christianity. So, you know, we end up with the resurrection being mixed with Ishtar or Easter and the bunny and the fertility and all that junk. And sorry, I didn't mean to sound crass, but now you know how I feel about it. So, but then with Christmas, with the trees and all of that, all of these things were tied to fertility gods. And, and so Constantine thought, well, you know, rather than have this enmity between the pagan religions of the empire, and this Christianity thing, let's just mix them. Huge mistake. Like I said, I'm glad that his mother did what she did, but uh, it started a slippery slope for the church that 
took centuries to start to parse and to, to clear out of. At any rate, so we have this Abbey of the Dormition, uh, and it, it was... Now, I'll also say, too, that it wasn't called that when there was the Byzantine monastery there. Uh, it had a different name, and it was leveled. And it was leveled by the Turks in the Ottoman Empire because the Ottoman Empire overthrew the Byzantines. All right? And they lasted for a thousand years. All right, next slide. Slide number, uh, what is it, three. Yeah. Now, this is Mount Zion. You see the bell tower up on top, and you can... You can tell the Dormition by the big domed roof that it has. That roof's made out of lead, by the way. Interesting. Interesting architecture. Now, that was built in 1900. In 1898, there were some German monks that received a deed to the property. They found the old foundations from the Byzantine monastery, and they built, it took them 10 years, they built from 1900 to 1910. They built this big, huge church on top of the old one. Now, I'm using this. The reason why I'm going into this is this is the same area. It's the same compound as where the upper room was. Uh, so it's the highest part, again, of the old city, highest part in Jerusalem, top of Mount Zion. Uh, I think it's interesting there that, that here Jesus would travel from the highest part to the lowest to be arrested. Uh, and, and note the escarpments. And an escarpment is the, the terraced walls uh, holding the earth back as they would step down the hill. There were escarpments. There are some that are still there that were there in Jesus's day. Uh, and it was just a, a really interesting place. In Jerusalem, you didn't just hike across town. Uh, I grew up on the flanks of the San Gabriel Mountains and everything was either up or down. Uh, and that's how it is in Jerusalem as well because it's surrounded by hills. So it was built just outside the gates of the old city. And... Um, well, let's go to the next slide here, to slide number four. Notice in the lower left, you see the, there's the lead roof of the Dormition here. Now look in the bottom center. You see there's a little gray dome there. And to the left of it, if you can see it, there's a minaret. And that's the, it's, a, it's a place of worship for Muslims. All right? So now let's imagine that you were standing in the window of the Dormition. You see the row of windows just underneath uh, the roof, and if you were standing there and taking a picture down at this dome and minaret area, let's go uh, and I'll yeah, go to the next one. All right. Now you see up in the top center, you see the big gold dome. That's the dome of the rock. It's on the Temple Mount. It's roughly where the temple would have been before the Romans pushed it off the edge of the Temple Mount. And the Arabs came in and built the dome of the rock. Uh, so that's the Temple Mount. Bottom here in the center, you see the dome and the minaret. That is, that's the, the roof of the upper room. And it's, it's there today. It's been, like I said, it's been rebuilt. Uh, and yet that's where it exists. So if you were standing in the window of the Dormition, taking a picture down at that dome and minaret, it would look very much like the next slide. So, that's the roof. That's the top of the upper room. Again, just want you guys to lock in. This is a real place. These things really happened. And, and I mean, we believe that, but it helps me. I don't know if it helps you, but it helps me. Now, notice that there's an iron gate around the outside. I remember going just on the other side of that big dome, and there wouldn't have been all the buildings and stuff in the way, uh, and looking down at the Temple Mount. And I, I mean, I almost, I, I was close to tears looking down and just thinking about uh, back in these days, in these chapters, uh, what it would have been like to be up there in the moonlight with Jesus as he taught. Fabulous, fabulous time. So, next slide. Now, this is the upper room, the entrance to the upper room, and it is the upper room. <laughs> so, uh, they didn't make that up either. Uh, anyway, if you look up on the top, you see the iron railing on the top, and that's the portion of the roof that shows from the, the vantage point of this photograph. Uh, you'd go up a set of stairs and into a door, and you'd come into this big room. And it would have been a room that was for rent. Uh, often that was the case. And in, during these feasts, the national feasts in Israel, the pilgrimage feasts especially, Passover specifically, people would have rented rooms out. They would have rented space because there were a couple, three million, two or three million people that would migrate, come into the city during these feasts. 
So this is a big time of year. It's a time of the year when these types of places would be occupied. And Jesus had, uh, had through his guys, he had procured this one uh, for the supper. So next slide. The upper room is called the Senecal, and that's Latin, and it means I dine. It's the place of the Last Supper. And so, and the architecture didn't look like this in the first century. That came later. Uh, it was probably rebuilt, oh, I don't know, 800 years ago. Uh, it was on the ruins of the ancient Byzantine monastery, again, uh, this location is also, if you're a tourist in Israel, it's called King David's Tomb. I completely disagree. They popularly call it this, and there's a whole deal underneath. I've been through it. had to take and put on a little paper yarmulke to go in and, and do all this stuff. <laughs> and it was like, fine, you know, whatever. But, um, and it was interesting. There is a tomb there. It's largely thought that it's not David's, that it's Manasseh's, King Manasseh. Because remember, he was kind of nuts. And, and so he was totally into self and, and glorifying himself and all of that, tried to get rid of worship in Israel and all. At any rate, uh, it's thought that it might be his because in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, it says that David was buried in the city of David. And that's a long ways from here. So am I going to go with what man says or what God's word says? So again, I don't believe that this is David's tomb at all. Uh, but notice there, a couple of things I want you to note in this slide. At the far end of the room, in the center, kind of to the left of that pillar, there's a door. That's the doorway to the stairs leading to the roof. Come, let us go from here. That was going through my mind as I walked through that door up on the roof. I was thinking, wow, this is just trippy, Lord. I just, you know, it was, it was just, I was kind of fried thinking about the whole thing. Um, now, notice also to the right of center, there's a great big kind of a garish-looking thing there. Um, it's called a mirab. Because when the Ottomans overtook the Byzantines, they established this as a mosque. And it was an Islamic mosque, and it was maintained by the Islamic people. It was maintained by the Arabs until 1948 when Israel got the land back and they took it back over and now it's, it's part of the Israelis' uh, uh, antiquities. Next slide, last slide. So now this is what a mirab is. It's a, it's a niche in the wall of a mosque. It's at the point that's nearest Mecca toward which the congregation faces to pray. You've seen the films of, of the Muslims, they're on their towels and, and they're all bent down and facing the same direction. They would be facing the mirab in, their, in that religion, and that's the place in the building that is nearest to Mecca. It identifies because they always pray towards Mecca. So they use this mirab as a marker, marker inside the building in order to do that. And so, I mean, I look at that and I think, well, you know, it kind of defiles the upper room, but you know, it's, it is, after all, just a room. And yet, some very significant things took place here. So, as we think about the upper room discourse, I want to make a few notes here, and then we'll get into the text for this morning. We actually will get into the Bible today. Uh, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ to his disciples at the end of their journey in this world with him. And so, it's again, it's packed. These are final instructions. Now, think about it. These guys have gone for three and a half years. Uh, learning from Jesus, sitting at his feet, watching him, and never knowing what he was going to do next. We've talked about that. I mean, if you were walking around with Jesus in the first century, you would definitely come away with the idea, I have no idea what this guy's going to pull next. I do not know. It's probably going to be way beyond my understanding. I'm just going to go with it. There's times where it says, and they didn't say anything to him at all. Yeah, they'd be afraid to by that point. It's like, I don't want to say anything because I know what's coming. It's something I'm not going to expect. And it's sort of how it is with us, guys. We don't know what the Lord is going to allow into our life next, but as we are grounded in him, as we are walking in the power of his Holy Spirit, as we have come to a place where, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, I've learned the secret to live well, whether I'm abased or I abound. And, and, and that as we walk along, we know that the Lord is going to allow things into our lives that we're not expecting, that we're not maybe counting on, that we're not seeing coming. And as we embrace those things through the lens of faith in our lives, we're not knocked off our pins because we easily could be if that weren't the case. At any rate, 
So he's revealing these things to him. And it was also immediately preceding his trial, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And he talks about that at length in, these, in this discourse, in these chapters. Another thing I want to note here is that he speaks with a great love. If that's not, I, I do not want that to be lost on you folks. Uh, I mean, this is right on the tail end of, uh, remember James and John, the sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, their mom came to Jesus. It's in Matthew. It's not here in John. They, they said, hey, uh, Jesus, um, my sons would really like to be in management when you set up your kingdom. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what she did. And he says, you have no idea what you're asking. And, and then he asks her a question. He says, are you able to take the cup that I'm going to take? Are you able? To, uh, and, and then the boys pipe up. They go, yeah, we can. And I read that and I think, oh my goodness, you know, I know the end and I know they just didn't have a clue. But through all of that, Judas is identified here as being the betrayer in the beginning of this chapter. And then we'll get into that probably in a couple of weeks. Um, through all of that, he knew. And he never, ever stopped loving each one of these guys. As a matter of fact, John makes sure that we understand that because verse 1 states that. He loved them to the end. And that's not to the end of the line in this night. He loved them in the same way that in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that in the beginning wasn't there's a definite time in the beginning. It means that goes back as far back as you can think, and then go back further than that, and then further than that, and then further than that, you'll start to have a little bit of a grasp on eternity past. In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. So that's not a point of beginning. This is not a point of end where he says he loved them to the end. It's that he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them all the way through. And so I want you guys to understand and to see and to look for the love of Christ in these passages because that same love is what the Bible says is shed abroad in our hearts. And his love for us is remarkable. Uh, he speaks of the great love and mercy for his disciples as he prepares to leave them and ascend to heaven. Jesus' discourse here is meant to inform, to prepare, and to equip his disciples uh, for what will soon come, and with a special emphasis on sending the sending of a helper, the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, on this side of the cross, we're going to delve into the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what it really is, not, not what gets packaged, guys. And, and let me speak to that for a minute. We live in an age of consumerism and something that really sickens me is when I see the church treated as a consumer item. If you're here this morning, and I'm not singling anybody out, but if you're here this morning and, and you've been a part of this body, praise God. If you're here and this is your first time, praise God. My prayer for you is that if you're considering this being the body that you want to identify with, this is not because you're here for the show. And I mentioned it before, if you're here for the show, you're in the wrong place. But if you are a disciple of Christ and you come with a heart that's expecting to hear from him and you come with, with an attitude of expectancy to experience him, and you're not here as a consumer, but you're here as a disciple. And your prayer is, Lord, is this where you want me to be? That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. I remember being a young guy coming into a church. and you know, I don't know, maybe I'll stay in this fire. Maybe and, and it was like the Lord just drew me. And I realized at that point that I don't really pick where I'm in a fellowship. He calls me. And I either acknowledge or I kick against it. And, and he'll work with me and all that. He's, he still loves me. And yet, that's just a real true statement. Avoid consumerism in the body of Christ. There's no place for it. There's a place for being obedient to the working, the moving of the Holy Spirit in your heart and saying, Lord, is this where you want me to hang my hat, where you want me to be home? God will honor that. Finally, before we get into the text, again, <laughs> yeah, we're going to get there. Isn't that typical of a preacher? That's like with the clothes, right? Do you know how many times I close? So in closing, I might do that three or four times. 
think last week we were 15 minutes late. Don't worry, guys. You're new. I, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> but the point is, my prayer is that, that we will come away from this time. And we'll be here for a few months. You know that, because you know me. Um, with more than an understanding, more than a cursory overview understanding of this text. My heart is that we experience these chapters personally, as we not just look over them, but as we walk through them together. And as we walk through them again with the expectancy of saying, Lord, what about me? How, how do you want to speak to me? What do you want to show me through this? I guarantee you, if that's your attitude, you will grow. Because that's part of why we come together as a church. So that we can hear from him, so that we can grow in our own walk with him, so that we can serve him out of a heart that is sincere and, and, and put forth by his working within us. And so that's, that's what this is about. All right. On to today's message. <laughs> Savior, shepherd, servant, slave. I'm only going to hit five verses this morning. Because we see that Jesus fulfills much. Savior, yes. Savior of the world, absolutely. Shepherd, yeah, we saw that here in the Gospel of John where he said, I am the good shepherd. And I love my sheep. I'm not like a hireling. I lay down my life for my sheep. We see where he portrays what it is to be a servant. To be the greatest, to be servant of all. And here in this text, we see what it is for him to take on that of being a slave. Verse 1, now before the feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world uh, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That verse is just packed. You know, there are so, there's just something I want to say too. There are a number of layers to these passages. And we can't, with the time that we have, we can't really plumb them all. And yet, there's, just a, there's several layers of understanding just in, chat, in verse 1 here. Uh, and it's marvelous. Uh, the first is that Jesus' hour had now come. And he was about to, by this time tomorrow, he would be, or he would have already fulfilled his calling, his mission to be the Savior of the world. By this time tomorrow, he would have been on the cross and taken down from the cross and in the tomb because they had to get it done before sunset because they had to get ready for the, the uh, Sabbath. So his hour had now come. He'd lived his life in anticipation of this hour. This is, this is the pinnacle. Again, this is what he had come for. And yes, he modeled this life. He modeled and he lived out and he preached and taught the kingdom of God for this three and a half years. And yet this was his mission. His hour had come. Now, just a quick note on the feast of Passover. It's Passover time. And there's some debate as to whether it was Passover was on Thursday or Friday. Um, and I will submit to you, I don't care. Um, <laughs> it's not important. Uh, some of the gospel accounts allude to it being on Friday, and yet I think it's absolutely reasonable to assume because Jesus is taking and he's eating the Passover meal with his guys here. It's Thursday night because we know that on Friday he's on the cross. So it's Thursday night. Uh, and again, I don't think it matters in God's economy, so don't let things like that bog you down. I, I even sometimes don't even bring those kind of things up. But if you've been a Friday Passover guy, great. If you're Thursday Passover, you know, fine. One or the other, the thing is, is that he had earnestly desired to eat this Passover with his men. That's what it tells us in the Gospel of Luke. Third, having loved his own. Now, this is interesting, and I want to present this correctly. Dan and I were talking uh, this last week, and, and I was saying, okay, 
It says that God so loved the world. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, right? Right. So the love that he has for the world, is that the same as the love that he has for his own? I'm going to read something to you, and this is a great explanation. It isn't so much that Jesus' love is different Um, but the dynamic of the love relationship is different. Yes, he loves the world. It's his will that all would come to repentance. He died for the sins of the world because he loves people. And the dynamic is different, though, in the love that he shares with his own. Uh, It's the love of Jesus for his own is greater because it has a response. And love answers to love. So, is it different? No, it's not different. Uh, or it's, or, I mean, is it better? No, it's not better in that sense, but it's different. It's the same thing as me saying, I love all of you, and, and I love my wife. Uh, it, it's, it, there's a, a relationship in place there that's different. So, it, yes, it, it's true that Jesus came and he, he loved everyone. He loves each person in this room. And he has a love because love answers to love. He has a love that is distinct for his people. The next thing I want to look at in this verse is to the end. He loved them to the end. As I mentioned, to the fullest extent, to the uttermost. The Gospel of John begins with in the beginning. And here to the end is a love that will never end. So he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the end. The next thing is stepping lower. We've seen that he came as a savior. That was his mission. He's not a hireling. He's the good shepherd. He came and he loves his own. And he lays down his life for his people. Verse 2, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Let's stop there for a minute. Jesus' dealings with Judas at this point. Jesus had known that he would be betrayed. I don't believe that he knew until he came to this supper that Judas would be the one. I believe that he was quickened. It says that he's troubled in his spirit. And again, that's up for grabs. It's just my own thoughts on it. Uh, But that as he came to this supper, the Holy Spirit showed Jesus that his betrayer was at the table with him. And that he knew as Satan had already set Judas aside and sort of targeted him, groomed him to be the one who would betray Jesus, that Jesus came to a full knowledge while here in this upper room. Again, did he know ahead of time? He might have. But when I look at the text and I look at the nuances of the text, I I wonder, did he not fully know until things unfolded in front of him? The point here is that Jesus does know at this point, and he's about to wash his men's feet. And he includes Judas. He includes him. You know, we don't have the advantage of having a camera in the room as he does this. But as he wraps himself with a towel and he gets this basin of water and he goes from one man to the next, this intimate, loving, uh, completely unexpected act, I can't imagine the look that would have been in Jesus' eyes as he washed Judas' feet, knowing that before dawn, he would be betrayed into the hands of his enemies through him. That's love. That's a love that I don't get. And I admit, I just don't understand the depth of that kind of love. That when he says, love your enemies in the Gospels, that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing here. Profound act of love. Interesting, too, with Judas. Judas chose. God has given to each of us a free will. And yes, 
the scripture had to be fulfilled that the son of perdition would be the one who would betray Jesus into the hands of sinners. We get that doctrinally. But Judas chose. And it, I, I, you know, I resist when, when I hear somebody say what equates to the devil made me do it. I don't buy that. Yeah, the enemy will blind the eyes of the unbelieving so that we end up getting out there into all kind of goofy things that, in our lives. And yet, Judas chose, and he chose to betray the Lord. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. Stepping still lower here, humbling himself and stepping over, uh, lower than his, his prideful men in being a servant. He, he gets up. These guys, I mean, we see the whole thing. We know it. We've read it before, those of us that know the Bible. But he gets up from this, this supper and, and he wraps himself with a towel and he gets a bowl of water and he begins now to wash these guys' feet. Uh, He's assuming the role of a servant here in just wrapping himself with a towel. Um, Jesus knew, I want you to understand something too. He knew his authority. He also knew his identity uh, as one who had come from God and one who was going to God. Knowing his past with God the Father and his future with God the Father, he determined to glorify him in the present. Remember in the last chapter, uh, he said, Father, glorify yourself in this. And he said, I have glorified it. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. This is what's unfolding now as Jesus prophesied then. That's what's unfolding at this point. He is glorifying the Father and assuming this position of a servant. Um, verse five, and after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Still lower, now assuming the posture of a slave. In the first century, you, there was two ways to do foot washing. These guys could have washed each other's feet. And yet, I can't help but think that when they showed up at the upper room, they were thinking, you know what? We're the inner core. We're hanging with the Messiah. We're pretty special. You know, we're the ones who've been chosen to be with Jesus and he's going to set up his kingdom. And we're, you know, mom just asked if we could, you know, have management positions and all of that. I believe that these guys were pretty hung in their pride. And that in that pride, they could have washed one another's feet coming in. It was absolutely customary and it was essential for supper, especially a Passover supper. And nobody did it. Nobody washed anybody's feet. They could have washed one another's. But see, if I'd have gone to wash so-and-so's feet, I'm one of the disciples, then that means I'm stepping lower than him. And I have, after all, I'm kind of on this way to being, you know, raised up. And I don't want to look bad in front of my buddies. And I mean, just think of the things that would have gone through their heads. We go through that stuff too. I mean, there's, so what's going on in these guys' minds is I'm not washing, I'm not going to. And so Jesus does it himself. He assumes the place of a slave because either they could wash each other's feet or if there was someone who would wash their feet, it wouldn't have been a servant. Certainly wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been the master of the house. It wouldn't have been the guest of honor. It would have been a slave because they were the ones that were assigned the lowliest tasks. And this is as low in their social order as it gets. This is the guy that's taking out the trash that has flies. Okay, This is the guy that's doing the dirty work. And so Jesus stoops, Savior, Shepherd, Servant, Slave, you see. In these first five verses, we see him lowering himself and going lower and lower as he goes. This is Jesus' love. It says in, in verse 1, he loved him to the end. And it, it, he did this because he wanted to show his guys love. Well, how do you show love? I don't know how you show love, but this is how Jesus shows love. By going low. Next week, we're going to get into servanthood. We'll talk about Peter's interaction. You know, this week is about Jesus taking the initiative. Next week is about our response. Okay? So, uh, this is actually kind of a two-part message. First part, Jesus' initiative. He goes low. 
and he demonstrates going low, not because he is, well, I'm God, so now I'm going to just like kind of set that aside and I'll, I'll go low. I'll show these guys how it works. No, it's because he is God. And because his nature, his character as God demands it. It's part of who he is. I remember I'll share a quick story with you. When I asked my wife to marry me, I never asked her to marry me. Um, uh, I had already gotten a ring and you know, she'd kind of indicated that she'd say yes. You know, it was all romantic and stuff. And, and she's shaking her head back there. Oh, he's telling that story again. <laughs> And I sat her down in a big overstuffed chair in our living room, um, in her living room. I wasn't, obviously wasn't living at the house there. And so I sat her down and I hid the ring under the, the foot of the chair and, and I said, close your eyes. She closed her eyes. So I went and I had already gotten, had this great big soup pot and I filled it with water and I grabbed a bunch of towels and I came and had her eyes, her, her eyes were still closed. I kept telling her, keep your eyes closed. And I just, I, I got down on my knees and very tenderly, took her feet, and I washed her feet, right? And I thought, what a romantic way to ask somebody to marry. I mean, right? I mean, points, right, guys? So anyway, yeah, there's an ulterior motive. But the point is, is that, I, and, and I never asked her to marry me. I asked her if I could serve her for the rest of our lives. And, and that was a beautiful moment. I don't want to, I'm not going to cheapen it by making it funny on that, because I meant it. I wanted to serve her for the rest of our lives. And through tears, she said yes. And, and that was beautiful. So I got up, and man, I am just flying. I am so happy. She said, yes, you know, right on, you know, and all that. And, and I'm all thrilled. And about 10 minutes later, I walk in the living room, and it's all cleaned up. And I went, oh, some servant I am. She cleaned up my mess. And I th in, in preparing for this this morning, I'm thinking that's not what Jesus did. He was not implementing a religious ritual for foot washing. I mean, as romantic as that can be and all of that, you know, buffoon John, I'm there, I wash her feet, I'm all servant-like and all that and romantic, and then she cleans up all of my mess, puts the towels in the washer and the whole deal. And it's like, no, he could have gotten somebody else, you know, hey, um, Pete, grab a bowl, fill it with water, give me that you know, that towel, let me wrap my, no, he does the whole thing. And he means it. That's the point. He means it. Jesus in this act is demonstrating what it is to have humble love. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul expounds on that. He says, love isn't arrogant. It's not proud. It doesn't boast of itself. Love is humble. Love, true love, puts you ahead of me. True love puts Jesus and his will for my life ahead of my own agenda. True love is when we are walking in the reality of esteeming one another as more important than ourselves. That's what he's modeling. We call it servanthood. I don't even think that we need to have a name for it. It should just be the way we are. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service of worship. You want to worship God? Serve one another. Be a living sacrifice. As we wrap up, I want to make one more statement here about this five verses. This is a living parable, and it's not my opinion. In verse 7, Jesus tells Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but you will. But it's a living parable. It's the gospel. It's beautiful. In verse 3, he says, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he'd come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper. And Jesus took the form of a man, rose from his majestic throne in heaven. He laid aside his garments. Jesus emptied himself, took the form of a man. He took a towel and he girded himself. He took the form of a servant, coming ready to do the work of redemption for you, for me. He then poured water into a basin. 
That's the work itself represented. His blood would soon be poured out. He wiped their feet with the towel with which he was girded. This one gets me. Think about it, guys. He's washing their feet and wiping them with the towel that he's wearing. And all of the dirt, I don't know how you, you know, I spent a lot of summers, I love being barefoot. If you ever at my house, you probably see me barefoot. I, I just, but you're out walking around. These guys walk around on dirt roads all day. And do you know how grungy your feet look after a day walking around with sandals on? Pretty grungy. Each of these guys, he's, he's washing their feet and he's wiping the dirt, their dirt, onto his robe. He wore our sin upon himself that we might become the righteousness of God. After washing their feet, this is in verse 12, Jesus took his garments back up again. Having accomplished his work, he would take his rightful place. He would resume the divine prerogative he laid aside as a man. He would take it back up. And he sat back down. Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father when he had finished the work. Read quickly Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This completely resonates. It, it, this is, it's one of those passages that just, just locks in to these first five verses in John 13. The Apostle Paul, while bound to a Roman centurion in Rome, in jail, writes this part of the most joyful letter of the New Testament. Talk about people that understand what it is to live well in tough circumstances. He writes this. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those of those who are in heaven and those who are on the earth and those who are under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus came as the form of God, he came in the form, it wasn't that he exchanged the form of God for a servant, for the form of a servant. It was revealed, his essence as God was revealed in the form of a servant. Again, it's not something that he just took on, decided to do so he could demonstrate being humble. He's the embodiment of humility. He's the embodiment of all that's right. And, and, and he revealed that through becoming a servant, a slave. Yes, Messiah. Yes, uh, Savior. Yes, Shepherd. And yes, servant, slave. All of the above. Interesting, decades later, Peter the Apostle would be writing to the church, writing to Christians about humility. And he put it like this. He said, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. That's in 1 Peter 5, 5. Here's the literal translation of that. Peter wrote, wrap the apron of humility around yourself. Interesting. What Jesus did here remained in Peter's mind and heart for the rest of his life. And we'll look at that next week as we get into uh, the dialogue that Jesus has with Peter. It's powerful. It's just uh, some amazing dialogue. Uh, as Peter tries to push back on Jesus washing his feet, and then Jesus says, look, you're not going to understand this, but you will. So you have to do this. So then Peter says, well, wash all of me. And, Peter, and Jesus says, no, no, no. Now, you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. That's the living parable part. But you need to have your feet washed. Again, we'll talk about that then. We're out of time, folks. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, look at these first five verses in, uh, in this wonderful gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak to us. I pray, Father, for each one here in, in many different places in our relationship with you, for those that may not know you, that they could simply come in, in an attitude of humility, saying, I know that there's something about this, there's something about this Jesus that I need to know, and that they would simply turn from the old life, embrace you, and begin today to walk with you. Lord, I pray that for each of us here, you would simply continue to instruct us as we leave this place, that you would use these things to conform us just a little bit more to the image of your son, uh, just as we have on the sign out in front, that we would be learning to think like Jesus. That's our goal. And Lord, we thank you that your love is poured out, your compassion is poured out, your mercy is poured out, that you come alongside us in our weakness and you simply love us. And it's your love that compels us forward to know that we've been in the presence of our master and that we simply want to be like him. So thank you, Lord, for your long suffering, for your tenderness with which you deal with us. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, just continue to do that work. We yield to it now. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.